You like the Just Baseball show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free. There's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never seen before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and much more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Friday, September 17th. This is the Just Baseball Show. That's Arm Lane. I'm Peter Apple. We got a big show ahead of you. Not only do we have an interview with Nick Davis, who was a filmmaker and director behind the 30 for 30 documentary series that airs on ESPN, Once Upon a Time in Queens, and it goes all over the 1986 world champion New York Mets. We also got to talk about a list that you just dropped and we have to maybe say sorry to a couple of players as well as evaluate this NL wildcard race because it seems like nobody wants to win. But before we break into all of that, we got to talk about the interview because it was fantastic. Nick was amazing. But the four-part documentary series, we talked about our top five favorite movies. This ranks up there with that for me because yeah. I put four days in October in my top five favorite movies. Everyone called me an idiot, but I just, I like what I like. I, I couldn't even baseball. make I couldn't even make a list. Like <laughs> don't get me wrong, my roommates they love movies, man, and like they'll put some good ones on out there, and I I'll thoroughly enjoy one. But there's no way I can be like, oh, this is my top five. I, I just I just right. don't I don't like movies enough to do that. I enjoy movies. I don't want people to think I'm a psycho. But honestly, I thoroughly enjoy these documentaries that are more captivating. I obviously don't want like a History Channel like 101 type of thing. But these types of Mets documentaries, like I was so captivated in that. That's just the way we are. We're just such sports guys, bro. I think it's just like we just can't even do movies. It just and and sports movies don't even do it for me. I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah, we're just so sporty. Probably a game on. Like if I'm watching a movie late at night, there's there's West Coast baseball games. Padres Giants. I gotta watch Padres Giants. I'm not gonna not gonna turn on Argo. Yeah, it might be in Jack's favorite movie. I'm more captivated. We're just too sporty. We're just yeah, by Anthony, I'm more captivated by an Anthony Discofani six inning outing than I am from a Tom Cruise performance. I always joke about this too. I don't know actors. Like you could show me Jake Gyllenhaal. I have no idea. You could put him next to Ben Affleck. I don't know the difference between the two. It's and so refreshing I'm, to talk to you about this because you're on my side. I talked to Jack and he's like, oh, you uncultured. Oh, people right now are listening. Oh, whatever. Stuff. I like what I like. They're scoffing right now. There's people yeah. listening right now. Are you, you don't know Jake Gyllenhaal versus Ben Affleck? Are you crazy? I'm like, ah, no. But anyways, Once Upon a Time in Queens. Talk about a great character. How about oh, Lenny yeah. Dykstra? That's a character. <laughs> Dude, you guys got to watch the film. For, for Lenny, Dykstra, just that. 
Lenny Dykstra, just go watch the film and come back to us and tell us if you think that he was all the way sober. I don't know. He probably was. You that might just know. be that but might just be sober for him. It might be. It was electric. The whole thing was fantastic. Arm, you dropped the top 100 prospect list that took 600 hours over under. Oh, my gosh. I, I would say slightly under, but like, but not as much as I'd like it to be under. Um, I mean, just day in and day out, especially the last few days, just making sure everything was good and all the write-ups are good and everything was detailed and double checking and triple checking, quadruple checking. And uh, the reception has made it worth it. You know, I'm glad people are excited about it. And um, I feel like I just gave birth or something um, with how much I put into this 27,559 words. Um, Big help from Dustin Demeter who killer write-ups as well. I mean, it, it was, it was a lot. I enjoyed it. But you get to that point at the end where you're just like, oh, my gosh, I need to finish this thing. But you don't want to rush it because you already put so much time into it. And uh, we did it. We did it. So I think people are really going to enjoy it. I think it's really informative. We really put the time in. And there's a lot of different things that went into this. I mean, we from talking to other players, to talking to evaluators, to talking to even coaches that I've been able to talk to, like every single thing. And then, of course, our firsthand accounts and as much video as we can watch, too. It's it's everything factored in there. It's crazy, man. After all this time, it's been so far in the works. And what I love about it, it's so comprehensive. You mentioned yourself. What is it? 27,000 words. The thing is, and it's only, it's kind of a reason why we started this. We just feel like there are some other websites, some other publications who don't put in the work, don't have the passion for it anymore like we do. And you'll look at this list and you'll see the passion. There are full write-ups, full Mm -hmm. scattering reports on every single player some websites are just that this is now on our website and you can also check out the full interview with nick on our website as well if you prefer to read it instead of listening to our stupid voices but you did make some changes to this top 100 before we get into the top 10 because there was a player that you moved even higher but i have a gripe as a yankee fan You move Jason Dominguez down a spot from 26 from the original top 100. And Which you, you were already Jordan, Yeah, and you move Jordan Walker up, who's also, he's he's young too. He's 19. Yeah. What did you see on that last little bit that made you say, you know what, Jordan Walker's ahead of Dominguez? It had nothing to do with Dominguez, really. It wasn't an indictment on Dominguez at all. Honestly, I, I watched a couple ABs from Dominguez recently. Did you see that ball he hit out? I don't know if you saw the clip on Twitter. It looked like he was about two baseballs off the ground and he time when he was golfing that out. Yes. He, fully he hit golfed a straight it, nine yeah. iron. Yeah. yeah. That, like I see that. I'm like, Oh my gosh, Dominguez has all of the potential in the world. The difference is we, we don't really know how that's going to translate. You mentioned Jordan Walker being not that much older than Dominguez. He's only about 10 months. If so, uh, older than Jason Dominguez. And he's raking in high A. But what really set it apart for me was I just started, I was watching at bat after at bat after at bat of Jordan Walker. And I was like, Holy crap. This kid is like polished. He's 6'5", 220. He's not, nobody's the physical specimen that Jason Dominguez is, but this kid's a physical freak too at 19 years old. 6'5", 220. 220 at 19. Yeah. You could give him a physical freak. I think it's there. Such a smooth swing too. He's 
puts up exit velos in the first percentile. So he's not far behind Dominguez in those regards either. Only a 23% K rate between low A and high A. Whereas Dominguez right now, he's struggling in low A. I'm not worried about him, but how can I not put Jordan Walker right now ahead of him if he's putting up similar exit velos, hitting in high A, and I love his swing. He reminds me a little bit of Yelich in the way that he sinks into that back hit, but it's not as dramatic because he doesn't need it to be as dramatic. And he really allows his just natural strength, natural bat speed to work and go eat. And 23% K rate, 9% walk rate, 150 WRC plus when you're in low A and high A as a teenager. And also he's actually playing decent defense at third. I like this guy a lot, man. I mean, he looks pretty good. Yeah. And and I trust your opinion too, because when I watched him, I was like, okay, maybe he is kind of really good. Also, another thing that I really love from the list before we even break into the top 10 again, I love that we have Jordan Lawler two spots ahead of Marcelo Mayer, because when I was when I was doing our draft evaluation, I always thought the hype was on Mayer and I get it. He's going to have to hit. But Jordan Lawler just seemed like the overall better prospect. I thought he was a better defender. I thought he's a little bit more athletic. I thought he's a better arm, a little bit faster. I think there's a higher floor for the bat. You you did it yourself. So why do you have Lawler ahead of Mayer? I think you hit all you hit the nail on the head. I mean, like if 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 Marcelo Mayer ends up better than Jordan Lawler, I wouldn't be surprised, right? Like the the offensive potential of him is, oh, yeah. is limitless, right? But he really has to hit, like you said, like he really has to hit. Lawler, even if he's a two seventy hitter, he's got or two sixty hitter, he's got raw power to hit twenty home runs. But the glove too, right? He's a guy that when I look at him. I think Mayer could be a good defender. Lawler could be like a gold glover. And not only to mention that, he's got plus speed, whereas Mayer's more of average to above average speed. I just feel like there's a lot more to fall back on with Lawler. And when I look at the ceilings, I don't really see that much of a difference. If everything clicks for Lawler, he's a five-tool player. So I just look at him and I say, it's really hard to rank these draft guys. I'm going to go with the more balanced tools across the board and the higher floor, and that's Jordan Lawler. And Jordan Lawler and Mayer, they were both drafted this year. What I don't understand when I'm looking at other lists is that when guys are drafted, immediately drafted with no pedigree at all, they get immediately slotted into top 10s. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Lighter is your highest from this draft, and he's at 21. I thought it was perfectly placed. You know, you got to earn your way into the top. Absolutely. They're all amazing players. And Lighter could be number one one day. We don't know. But for right now, putting... I saw on MLB Pipeline, Mayor was in like ninth. It's just too high. Ninth. ninth. Just well, too high. You're putting him ahead of guys. If he's ninth, you're putting him ahead of guys that have raked in double A with, with tools. Yeah. You're putting him ahead of guys that are. Who might even be younger. Ahead of Brennan Davis. Mayor, but younger than some of the other guys drafted yeah. in the class. Yeah. I mean, at that point, you might as well just put Dominguez up there, right? Like, why like, not? Why not? Why not? Why not Jordan Walker then at that point? So that that's where I think the draft effect is a little weird. And actually, it's funny you mentioned that. We got a lot of tweets at us like, thank you for not putting the draft guys way up there. I like to see them show something first. And I'm like, I agree. I think where other prospect outlets go with that is that they're saying, okay, I can still dream on this guy limitlessly because I haven't seen him do anything that I don't like yet. Nine times out of 10, they're going to show you something that's like, oh, that's a little concerning. Yeah. Like they're going to show great and they're going to show some negative things. So it's like, let's tread lightly here and wait. And and that's kind of where I'm at. If mayor hits the way that Jordan Walker's hitting, you bet your ass I'm going to bump him up. But right now I got to wait and see. As you should. Also, an absolute hammer. Francisco Alvarez 
We saw him at the Futures game. He looked like he was wearing catcher's gear under his pants. He might have been. He looked like a straight muscle hamster. This guy is 19, raking, and he's a catcher. And guess where he is? Number four, New York Mets. You're going to love the interview later, and you got to love hearing that Francisco Alvarez, your prospect, is at number four we should have told i should have told nick about this actually um seriously <laughs> we should have told him on the episode like hey i know we're, we're talking history right now but how about the future uh because you might have your best catcher since mike piazza uh, and and i really mean that uh because francisco alvarez I, I had him a little bit further back i think more towards the eight or nine range when we first recorded last week and i didn't make many adjustments to this list but the big adjustment that was one of them was alvarez because i just watched more at bats i already had my notes and then i was watching more at bats in high a uh, and just going back and I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, he's 19. He's a catcher. I like his defense and I'm looking at his at bats and I'm like, there's nothing not to like about this guy. It's so simple. The power is so easy. His body is so controlled for a 19 year old. He's 5'10, 230, but it's, it's like all muscle. And his Almost. swing reminds me a lot of Tyler O'Neill. He starts a little bit open, a great comp. very set into that back hip and doesn't do much. All he does is bring that foot over and just unload on the baseball. And he doesn't have as much swing and miss as a Tyler O'Neill because he doesn't need to do much to generate power. And he knows that. So he just kind of gets preset and he just unloads on it. And he already figured himself out at 19 years old. I mean, I think this guy could be the number one prospect in baseball uh, not long from now. I remember when we were sitting there close at the Futures game, there was a lot of home runs and a lot of great prospects. But I remember when Francisco Alvarez hit his home run to left field, you and I both just straight looked at each other and thought to ourselves, that sound is different off the bat. It it didn't go more than... And he's 19. Yeah, he's 19. It didn't go up like more than 20 feet off the ground. And it just went on a straight line out of the stadium, out of the park. He's 19 in the Futures game against the best pitching prospects in the world doing this. Yeah, now he's doing it. And he's a catcher. He's a catcher. It's just nuts to me. And before we move on to the NL wildcard, I have one more thing for you. I We got into, into a debate about whether the Orioles, a lot of the pitchers leaving there become elite. Exhibit A. Kevin Gosman and even Josh Hader was an Oriole at one point. Andrew Miller, I could go on with Jake Arrieta. I could even go on further. When I am thinking about the number one pitching prospect in baseball, because you have Grayson, Grace Rodriguez of the Orioles and Shane Baz of the Rays, both in your top 10. I think to myself, whether this is fair or not, and probably wouldn't even make sense to put it in your top 100. But if I got a Rays pitcher, and I know that the Tampa Bay Rays are going to get every single droplet out of Shane Bass. And then you look at the Orioles' history of being able to unlock their best pitching prospects. I almost think to myself, Grayson could actually be better, but it won't even matter because Shane Bass is going to have every single opportunity. And if he's that close, I would just go with the Rays guy. I don't know. If that's not, no, no, that's it, analysis, but it just seems like it's the truth of baseball. Totally fair. It's totally fair. And I'd be lying to you if I told you that wasn't something that is considered. How heavily considered? It depends. But yeah. what I will say is, I think we're already seeing the Rays effect on Shane Baz, right? Where was Shane Baz a year ago? Where was Shane Baz two years ago? He was a good yeah. prospect. He was a first round pick, but he was a throw in in a trade uh, that was a disaster, obviously, with Chris Archer. And he was a back end top 100 guy. 
the Rays simplified his mechanics. They unlocked a ton. And now he's in the conversation with Grayson Rodriguez. Like, I think the race helped get him in that conversation. Mm. That's how high I am on Grayson. But generally speaking, and, and honestly, moving forward, he could end up being better than him because they could keep unlocking more. And I don't know how much is left in the tank for Shane Baz, but I can tell you that they made him a hell of a lot better. And I bet you the Rays had a big effect on that. Of course, that matters. They all I'll say on this is because I've been on Grayson for a while. If the Orioles screw up Grayson Rodriguez, I will never forgive them. (laughs) Well, this, this was the, this is the absolute best top 100 prospects list I've ever seen. You absolutely killed it. If you don't go to justbaseball.com and check it out, you're just losing out. It's fantastic. It gives you so much info on all of the best players that will debut in a couple of years, maybe even down the line or possibly next season. It's it's a fantastic list. But we got to talk about something that it's blowing my mind. Nobody wants to win the NL wildcard. No, not at all. Nobody wants to win it. No one has. I mean, even a couple days ago, they're losing to the Pirates. These are the games they got to win. The Padres are, of course, just getting rolled over by the Giants. And now the St. Louis Cardinals (laughs) might actually get in there. Can you believe it? Is is Adam Wainwright going to pitch a wild card game? Yes, and he's probably going to win it. (laughs) He's going to shut the Dodgers down, and Major League Baseball is going to just put their head into the ground and just be like, this is the worst thing that could have happened. Could you imagine? Instead of getting Dodgers Giants, we get Cardinals Giants. Cardinals Giants. I mean, but you said nobody wants to win it. Reds three and seven in their last 10. Padres four and six in their last 10. Phillies four and six in their last 10. Mets three and seven in their last 10. Cardinals seven and three. They made a push last year too. They did the same thing. And they lost in the wild card game, but you know what? I think they might do it again, man. I think they might do it again, and they look really strong right now. I think it's a real possibility, and I'm even looking at their remaining schedules. The Padres, they have the Cardinals coming up this weekend. That is going to be such a good series. Then they go to the Giants. Then they go to the Braves. Then the Dodgers. Then the Giants again. I don't think the Padres are going to make it. No. The Reds. The Reds. They're just falling off. They They face the Dodgers. Then the Pirates, then the Nationals, then the White Sox, then the Pirates. They should be able to win this. Why are the Reds just? I have an honest question. I don't know. I have an honest question for you. So, gun to your head, they tell you you have to pitch a scoreless inning against the Reds. Do you tow the rubber and throw the ball with your right arm? You're a natural righty, or do you throw it with your left? I think I throw it. Not hit lefties, bro. They cannot hit them. I think I throw it with my left. Seriously. Yeah. It, it's crazy. It's unbelievable. They get shut out by Jay Happ. Dylan Peters. Dylan Peters of the Pirates. Anything shutting that out the Cincinnati Reds. From the left arm. It doesn't even matter. If it comes from a left arm, it has to be mental at this point. And to parallel it to the documentary, one of the things we talk about um, with Nick is that you know, the scuffing of the balls that they were talking about with Mike Scott. And of course, scuffing the balls makes it a little bit you know, nastier, especially when you're throwing a splitter, but a lot of guys were scuffing balls. The Mets were so domed up, just focused on he's scuffing balls. Let's prove it. Let's prove it. Let's prove it. Like, how about you just focus on hitting him? Like, it's not like these balls are like stopping in midair. They were nasty. Trust me. I get it. But like, if they focused on hitting him as much as they focused on trying to prove that he was cheating, it probably hit better. So I feel like it has to be something along those lines. I think it's like a very fair parallel. I think it's an extremely fair parallel. And even looking at the Cardinals, and this is why I think the Cardinals might have a shot. They do have a tough schedule, though. They go to face the Padres, like we said, this weekend. Then they got four at Milwaukee. 
But then they face the Cubs, then Milwaukee again, then the Cubs. If they can beat up on the Cubs, split with the Brewers, and beat the Padres, that, that's your wild card team. The St. Yep. Louis Cardinals will make that second wild card team. Jack that's Flaherty. unbelievable. Get back here, Jack Flaherty. Come on back. Come on. We need you. We need you. Or, or the, the Reds can just decide, you know what? Maybe we can hit lefties and not be so right. domed up. Not be so domed up. It's crazy. They, they just The Pirates are going for the sweep. And, and this is airing Friday, but they're going for the sweep today on Thursday. And they're going to face the Pirates again. Like, can you just... And it looks like the Phillies and the Mets... I mean, the Mets go to play Philly, then Boston, then Milwaukee, then Miami, then Atlanta. I think the Mets are out of it. The Phillies have a shot. They, they still do. Hold, I mean, they play, the, they play the Mets, then the Orioles, then the Pirates, then the Braves... Then the Marlins, the Phillies might have the easiest schedule out of all of them. Marlins playing spoilers. Can Aaron Nola just figure it out for a little bit longer? Can Zach Wheeler just give him a couple more good starts? If looking at this picture, who do you think is going to get the NL wildcard? If the XFIP kicks in, yeah. then, then Aaron Nola, Aaron Nola is going to take him to the promised land. But if the XFIP doesn't kick in yet, I don't know what the expected date is of XFIP kick in. Right. Um, but it hasn't kicked in. <laughs> um, but I, honestly, just the Phillies, I don't think they have enough offensively right now. It, it's a one man show with Bryce Harper. And it, he's getting one, like I've said this, he's getting one pitch to hit a game and he's hitting it out. And he's but hitting it out. That's about it. And, and nobody, why would you pitch to him? I'd rather just go after JT Real Muto and the other guys. Like that's the next pitch. Right yeah, now. exactly. The, the and, and Hoskins is out. So it's like he has no protection. Why, why pitch to why pitch to Bryce Harper? So I, I just think that they're going to have trouble scoring runs. I really see this as I, I would say that it's the Cardinals spot to lose now. And I, I still think that the Reds can get hot with the way that offense is and get rolling, especially if they don't have to face too many lefties. Uh, they could get rolling in there, too. But uh, I think the Cardinals right now are the most complete team. Um at this moment with the way they're playing uh, from top to bottom. And I mean, the AL wildcard is kind of nuts too right now. I mean, as we stand today, the Yankees and the, or- and the Blue Jays are tied with the Red Sox, a three-way tie of for AL East teams of AL East teams. And then Oakland and Seattle, Oakland's three and a half back. Seattle is four back. I think it will really be decided between the Yankees, the Blue Jays, and the Red Sox. So let's go over their remaining schedule. The Red Sox, they go to play Baltimore this weekend. Then the Mets, then the Yankees, which will be an incredible series. Then they go face Baltimore, then Washington. That's a pretty easy schedule remaining for the Red Sox. Yeah, you know, in the Red Sox, they look like they're starting to come alive again. I think that was a really big series for them to turn it around against the Mariners. Um, the Mariners are tough, man. Mariners the Mariners are, are tough. tough. And yeah, we were talking fading. about this. The Mariners are the best team as an underdog when we're in terms of a gambling sense. They were 69 and 38 as underdogs this year. You make a ton of money just betting on the Mariners as underdogs every game. Seriously, seriously. I just think the Blue Jays right now, they're, they're too hot. I don't know if anyone's going to slow them down. And, and now their pitching is starting to come together. Barrios is settling in. Manoa's look good. You got Pearson back in limited spurts, but still just another arm in the fold. It's going to be between the Red Sox and the Yankees. And 
I don't really know what's going to happen. And that's why I love it because both teams have shown to be as good as any team in baseball. And both teams have had their offenses disappear, have struggled to close games out. They, they both have issues, uh, but they both are star studded. So it's going to be interesting to see which team kind of has the guts down the stretch here. Uh, both have a ton of experience and uh, it's really just going to come down to who can really get hot at the end here. And I think it might come down to the last day. Let me tell you the Blue Jays and the Yankees strength of schedule. We'll make a prediction and then we'll move on to our interview with Nick. Okay. So we know the Red Sox schedule is pretty easy. The Yankees remaining schedule, they play three at Baltimore. Then they play three at Cleveland, then Texas, then Boston, then Toronto, then Tampa. So that last week or so last two weeks of the season is going to be the most crucial week for the Yankees. If they can come out on top there, I think they make the playoffs. If they go under 500 there, it's over. You know, I'm smiling. Why? Because those games might not even matter for the Rays. And I bet you they are going to want to bury the Yankees. They will want to end the Yankees more than the Red Sox or the, or the Blue Jays. Absolutely. Yankees and Rays just do not like each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. So I, you know, I was thinking, you know, these games may not matter for the Rays. Oh, they matter. They matter. They will. And maybe they won't, you know, stretch their guys out 110 pitches like it's a playoff game that they have to win. But I can promise these guys are going to be locked in and they're going to say, let's end the Yankees season. And this might be the most it's going to be good intense locked baseball. in Rays team that the Yankees have to face at the end of the season could be the absolute hardest Rays team to That's- beat. That's when they terrifying. have nothing to lose except to beat down the Yankees. I mean, that's You're playing with the house's <laughs> money. You're playing with the house's money at that point. The Blue Jays remaining schedule. They play Minnesota. Then they play Tampa. Then Minnesota again. Then the Yankees. Then the Baltimore Orioles. So they don't have the easiest schedule either. The Chris Sale is going to have to deal and each of his starts for the Red Sox. I mean, Evaldi looked good in his last outing. Look at the Jays. Their pitchings look strong. I think their schedules are all pretty comparable when we look down the stretch here. I think each you could argue each team just kind of controls their own destiny, and that's what makes it really fun. And uh, they all play each other, right, when you go through these schedules. So it's going to be close. I'm going to go with my prediction as Blue Jays get in, and then I really, I really think that the Yankees find a way. I think the Yankees find a way. Um, I don't believe in this Red Sox team. You know I haven't. I know. Um, and uh, they won me the biggest parlay of my life the other day. Hey, you killed it. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. And I'm sure I'll lose that all on football Sunday. But oh, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm going to lean Yankees. And uh, we'll see. I think it's a coin flip, but I, that's what my gut's telling me. I am going to go. I told Jack, I'm not going on the record saying the Yankees are make the playoffs. The Yankees are going to make the playoffs and they're going to face the Boston Red Sox. Oh, you have the Jays faded. And it's going to be Garrett Cole versus Chris Sale. Oh, best wild card game ever, ever. ever. I, I won't complain there. I mean, I love the Jays, but no complaints for me on that one. So let's talk to Nick Davis. Welcome on Nick Davis, the filmmaker and director behind the new ESPN 30 for 34 part documentary series. Once upon a time in Queens, an account of the 1986 world champion New York Mets and how the culture of New York City changed throughout the 1970s leading up to the late 1980s. And Nick, after watching the four part series, there was obviously a focus on the team and how they developed over the years from a terrible franchise to a champion. But I was also so interested in how New York City has changed from absolute chaos into at least controlled chaos. So 
I'm curious, how do you think the Mets really represented New York City in the 1980s? It's really bizarre to me how fused that team and the city became. Um, When you think of great sports teams, you don't ordinarily associate them with where they were. You know, you don't think of the rollicking Oakland A's of the early 70s and think of, oh, yeah, they exemplified Oakland or the Reds in the 70s. It just it didn't happen. But. You know, as uh, Joe Petruccio says in the film, you know, as the as the city got better, as the team got better in the 80s, the city got better. I don't know that the Mets had anything to do with it, but somehow out of the, the misery and malaise of the late 70s, Ford to City dropped dead, the the. the Blackout and the Seaver trade. This this nadir in New York City in the summer of seventy seven. That's where we begin, and and the city seemed to get better, and the team really did get better in the eighties, and and there were a, still a lot of problems in New York City. There always are, but 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 there was money and yuppies, and and Wall Street was was on the rise again in the eighties, and and the Mets were drafting, were bringing on one great player after another, drafting. Strawberry and then Gooden coming out of nowhere. And and these two incredible all-star veterans land in their laps, Keith Hernandez and then Gary Carter. So you have this incredibly, you know, charismatic juggernaut of a team by the mid-80s. And the, and the city is back. The city has gotten its swagger back. And, and no team had more swagger than the 1986 Mets. So how did it happen? Why it happened? I don't know. But it was uh, certainly a lot of fun to tell the story. And you obviously grew up a Mets fan. That's something that uh, we found out when we went to the pre-screening at City Field, which was so cool. And uh, it was a good and a bad thing. It was good because we got to see it before everybody else. But then I had to wait way longer than everybody else for parts three and four. Uh, But I was excited we were able to watch three and four yesterday, and it was fantastic. And I'm going to get into all the little intricacies of, of every part of the film. But the one thing that uh, I really wanted to ask you about is going through your career. Obviously, film has been a big part of everything you've done. But what was it like to be able to do something on a team that you grew up loving, a championship that you saw, and then being able to pitch that to ESPN? Like, did you ever imagine getting to where you are now and how did the road lead to here? (laughs) I don't know. It's (laughs) a a crazy dream. I mean, I really, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot. uh, I I didn't think about it very much until, until we actually finally finished, you know, the film we locked in July 23rd and still had a lot of last minute stuff to do and, and really worked up and through Sunday night when we finally finished episode four. Um, But I've been thinking a lot about this game I went to at Shea in August. I think it was August. And then I was looking on baseball reference. It may have been late July uh, against the uh, Expos. Gooden was pitching. The place was going crazy. I think Gooden threw a shutout. I think we won two to nothing. But but what I remember was the feeling of being at Chase Stadium. And it was like nothing I'd ever felt before. I mean, I, you know, my, the, the heart of my fandom was 76, 77, 78, 79, 80, these miserable years where my favorite player was Bruce Beauclair because he could, I don't know why, but he had a great drag bunt and, you know, and whatever. And he was the, not a power hitter in right field. I mean, whatever. He was my guy. And then all of a sudden, like, no, you have a real team and, and the place was going crazy. The electricity, at Shea, and I remember I, I said to myself, 
remember this, remember this feeling. It's not going to happen again. And it, it, that feeling that I, you know, 20 year old Nick Davis at Shea in 85, that feeling became this film like and and th- th- I don't know how it happened I you know there were all kinds of twists and turns in my career and whatever but but to to be able to do that I mean it, it's it, it really is a lifelong dream and um yeah I, I don't know what else to say about that <laughs> <laughs> I'm also so extremely curious about your vision as a filmmaker um how did you want to approach the story given that there is some overlap between the doc and Daryl 30 for 30 that they previously did on ESPN. How did you go about finding new angles to tell their stories, which have been widely publicized? Cause you really did such a fantastic job. Well, thank you. I, it, that never concerned me. It never really entered my mind. I felt like uh, in my mind, nobody had ever done this as a long form documentary before. And obviously I'm familiar with Doc and Daryl. I saw the documentary. I read Jeff Perlman's book. I read Eric Sherman's book. I mean, you know, the, the books and, and, you know, Doc's book and Daryl's books. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that has been out there, but nobody had this canvas to play on. This was mine. So I'm taking all the material that's out there and, and putting it on this canvas and then shaping it and, and trying to give viewers an emotional experience that is rollicking and fun and dark and scary and dangerous and funny and, and take you through what I saw as an epic story of a team and a time and a place. And how did we go from that misery, the cities in the toilet, the teams in the toilet to the pinnacle of October of 86 and then, you know, falling essentially off the cliff afterwards. That's the story I wanted to tell. So I was certainly aware of these other things and and sort of I knew there would be chatter about them. But it didn't ever really concern me because I had my own work to do. And you knew that we were going to have to get here and I, I figured I had to ask it first or at least early on, but Lenny Dykstra, um, my gosh, I, oh my I mean, I, I think you knew you were going into a situation there that was going to be exciting and entertaining uh, to say the least, but did you come away with, wow, Lenny Dykstra just gave me so many sound bites and so many quotes. I don't even know what I like. What was the approach to that? I just want to hear about Lenny Dykstra. Frankly, I don't even know how to phrase that. question. <laughs> right. I should just say Lenny Dykstra. That's it. That's the question. <laughs> Lenny Dykstra, go. Uh, Lenny Dykstra was amazing. Uh, it was a uh, an interview that was conducted during the the, uh, the depths of the pandemic. I was here. I was in my office um, in New York City, and he was in Los Angeles. Um, through a miracle, we wound up with. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel and Cousin Sal as executive producers. Cousin Sal happens to be friendly with Lenny Dykstra. So uh, Cousin Sal sort of escorted Lenny to the place where we rented a house for the day uh, in L.A., uh, and made sure he got to the to the uh, you know the interview on time. We were apprehensive because he has such a reputation. He was great. He was amazing. He was so cooperative. It gave us all the time we needed and more. Um, and and was very accessible. And is also 
he's an entertainer. He oh, knows yeah. what he's doing. You know, okay. he, he sits down and the first five to seven minutes were hilarious and profane. And none of that made its way into the film. You, <laughs> you, can't, you can't talk about what he was talking about in those first five minutes. But it was hilarious. I was laughing so hard I had to mute my microphone. And, and, but it was, it was an incredible day. Um, and, and that raw interview, I just got a note from uh, one of the editors last night saying, you know, uh, getting to watch his raw interview tape was one of the highlights of his professional life <laughs> because it was, it was so real. And, and he did, he started out profane and hilarious. And you're thinking, this is, this guy's Lenny Bruce. And, and by the end, he's opening up and, and revealing what that moment meant to him and, and saying, you know, look at my life now, you know, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, but it's okay. Cause I, I won the world series in New York city. What else is there? And you're, it's like, it's like Brando in on the waterfront. I mean, it's like, you know, you couldn't ask for more from an interviewer, uh, from an interviewee as an interviewer. And I just, I, I remember I was exhausted by the end of the day. I just was like, I was wrung out and I hadn't been doing anything. I mean, I would just, every once in a while I would say, I'm sorry, uh, do you mean amphetamines? You know, I mean, like, <laughs> like I, I was just trying to keep up. It was like, uh, he was like a, a, a bucking Bronco, but. I do think that he's crazy like a fox. I think he's in 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 a. Uh, I think he's in more command than than most people may, may realize. Um, and certainly, as a you know, a guy who loved rooting for him, I'm, I'm hoping that he you know has has you know a, a, a decent life at this point. And that was a part of the documentary that really stuck to me was not that the players were just talking about their careers, talking about the season, but really how it affected their lives because it was so monumental. And I have another similar question, kind of similar to his, where it's just I have a statement and I kind of want you to run with it because I don't know how to I don't even know how to ask it. You guys should be documentary film producers because that's the way I ask my question. Yeah, right? I would just sort of say something like, well, in game five, what can you say about game five? Because you know? I, could, I could give you a rundown of it, but it comes much better from your mouth. Right. The greatest game ever played. 1986. Your head's moving up and down. Uh, yeah, game six of the of the playoffs, um, you know, because of the quote unquote Buckner game, I think a lot of people have forgotten, like, that was the greatest as, as soon as it, was, as it was over, even while it was happening in the in the late uh, extra innings, people were saying this is the greatest game ever. The, the tension was unbelievable. And the city ground to a halt as we watched this game. And it was also a great game because, you know, you had you had the dark specter of Mike Scott looming over everything. And and the Mets convinced that they couldn't beat him. And like, wait a minute, you guys are have just run roughshod over the league and and you think you can't beat this guy and to a man they all said now like we, we couldn't hit him like we just couldn't touch him and so they, they this was their game seven they had to win this game and you know and then you've got Ojeda and and his arm troubles that we didn't know about at the time it was um you know it was incredible and and you know back and forth and the greatest mound visit in the history of uh, of baseball um yeah and Epic, epic game. And just to follow up on the Mike Scott conversation, because what I just really couldn't understand from watching the film was why the umpires and the league threw those scuffed balls for Mike Scott on the Astros, basically to the wayside. 
Why would they not care that he was cheating? I mean, Scott even told a reporter when asked about the scuffing the balls that he would write about it in his book. And then that was my favorite quote. When the reporter asked when the book was coming out, he just said never. I thought that was hilarious, but I never understood why nobody seemed to care except the Mets. Yeah, I I think it sort of I don't know is the short answer. I would say I think it's in that category of it was a different time. (laughs) And it's like, you know, we couldn't we can't catch him cheating and, you know, deal with it. Hit the ball like I I don't know. He says he's not. I mean, the the idea that the National League president says, well, he says he's not cheating. (laughs) I guess he's not. (laughs) It's that easy. What I like to. I liked how you phrased that or how you, how you framed it too, because it was like you were showing that there was some legitimate evidence that he was cheating, but at the same time, the Mets were way too focused on that, right? Because personally, I think it's history repeats itself. It's a little bit similar to the sticky substance thing where Mike Scott was far from the only guy scuffing baseballs, right? A lot of players were doing it. I forget who it was, but somebody got caught one time and literally the sandpaper fell out of his pocket when they were checking mm-hmm. his pocket. Oh, yeah. I think it was uh, Drebeck, maybe. But. Exactly. So, like, this is this is something that was happening quite frequently, and they're not going to enforce it all of a sudden in the playoffs with the Mets, and it would have just been a nightmare. I think that's why they kind of decided to stay away from it. But I really liked your angle there where it was these players are some of the best players in the game. Gary Carter could have won the MVP if he wasn't hurt. You're talking about a bunch of guys that were fringe Hall of Famers or Hall of Very Good Players and they're focused on scuffs on a baseball rather than their approach in the game. And uh, that kind of piggybacking off of that, were there any things in that regard or just beyond that, that you didn't know until you got into this documentary as a Mets well, fan? I, I, yeah. I mean, I didn't know that Ed Hearn, uh, the backup catcher had saved <laughs> scuffed baseballs from 35 years ago. And, uh, you know, apparently he had a sanitary sock full of baseballs in his parents' house in Florida. And he had one of them shipped, uh, to Kansas city where he lives now. So that, so that we could have it in the background of, 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 uh, and he could show it to us. I mean, it was, um, it was totally on their minds and, and, and he got into their heads and that's, you know, that's a, a large part of sports, right? It's psychology and it's the mental game. And that's, I think one of the things that really surprised me about the film uh, or you know, about making it was, was think, man, these guys were smart about baseball. They had a baseball IQ that was off the charts and they loved talking baseball with each other. You know, when Keith Hernandez came over and he says in the documentary, you know, that was his goal after the game, let's all go to the hotel bar and have beers and talk about our at-bats and, and get these guys thinking and talking baseball. And, and that animated all of them. Um, and, and, you know, say what you will about Lenny, like the guy's a baseball savant. And I, I think that to me was, was really surprising, you know, as a, as a fan, as a kid, anyway, growing up, I was like, well, they're just great athletes. And, and certainly that 86 team had so much talent. You felt like, well, they, they're, they're going to win. They're going to beat everybody, but they were, they were smart about it. And talking about Keith Hernandez, he really felt like the leader of that 1986 team. And one of the best baseball moments I saw was in episode three, where Keith Hernandez is on second base telling Daryl Strawberry to keep his shoulder in. And Mm. he ends up hitting a three run home run to tie the game against the Astros. And like I said, he really just seemed like the leader of that clubhouse. Was that obviously evident to you as well? But I'm also curious about who were some of the other under the radar guys in that clubhouse. 
Well, I think we all at the time felt like Keith is the leader. And then how is it going to work when Gary comes over? Because Gary is obviously a leader um, in a certain regard. And I think to some extent there were Keith guys and Gary guys. Um, but I think the film sort of endorses. I mean, what I love about making a film when you don't have a narrator is I leave it to the viewers to decide. But, I, I you know, Hernandez, uh, Sid Fernandez says, you know, nothing against Gary. But for him, it was, it was Keith. And I think most... Most of the team kind of felt that way. On the other hand, or in addition to that, I think that the leadership of Ray Knight went under the radar, speaking to your question. And I think that he was incredibly valuable to that. He was so tough and such a leader. And and I think that the the management didn't recognize what he was doing. Management saw him as 298 you know, good batting average, 12 home runs, you know, and, and said, well, we got Hojo chomping at the bit and ready to be a star. Hojo comes in in 87, he hits over 30 home runs, 30 stolen bases, you know, so it would, you know, it's hard to complain about that. But I think that what Rain Knight brought to that team was that intangible thing that maybe can't be measured by analytics, you know, heart and, and, um, you know, you don't miss it until it's gone. What I really liked about that entire angle, kind of building off of that, is that it seemed very evident throughout each of the episodes that really you can have a situation, and it's very common even now today as well, especially with analytics, but even that aside, where the front office doesn't really know the heartbeat of of the team, right? And they don't know, they look at him like a 295 hitter, like you said, or 298 hitter, and, and whatever his stat line uh, is is showing. But I think you look at some teams across baseball, even right now, look at the San Francisco giants. Of course they're producing, they've got the second most home runs in baseball, but there's something else there, right? There's, there's a cohesiveness there yeah, that yeah. has allowed them to be better than the Dodgers this year in the regular season. We'll see how right. it goes in the playoffs. I think it's going to keep going. Well, I think that disconnect is still existing today, but I really thought it was a very interesting, interesting way to demonstrate it where it was like, they were able to overcome that disconnect for a season, but you can only do it for so long. And it kind of reminded me of the bulls as well uh, with, with the way that bulls documentary was framed in terms of the front office, not really knowing the pulse of the team. Yeah. I think it's really one of the, and this is sort of off topic. I'm just going to speak as a baseball fan. Now it's one of the frustrating things about watching games these days is you feel like the managers are not being permitted to watch the game and respond to what's actually happening. The guy's dealing, he's thrown 82 pitches through six innings. You're in a pennant race. You leave Marcus Stroman in the game. Like what, 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 you know, these plans and formulations and well, you know, you can't pitch two days in a row, whatever. It's like, play the game. It's a game. Are you not aware of, like, you can feel it when, when things are happening in a game. You can feel momentum. You can't necessarily measure it and quantify it and put a, a number on it. And it's just, it's made the game, you know, I don't want to be one of these guys. <laughs> Old man yeah. ranting at No, no. no. This but is it, a top for us too it's just like you watch the game respond to the game and 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 yeah it used to be that the, they would just say well he hit 298 so we're and we got hojo so we can get rid of him but now it's like in every actual game and it, it it's really dispiriting and frustrating what are you doing taking blake snell out of the world series game i mean 
I'm a baseball fan. It's just the guy is he's dealing. Aren't you watching the game? I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, and, and one thing I wanted to say uh, going off of that is you you put the moment in where it would rarely happen in today's game. Lenny Dykstra comes in left yeah. on left. I loved yeah. that. And, and yeah. talk about just going with your feel there. The yeah. irony in the whole thing, though, is the juxtaposition of they didn't have the the pulse of basically having that cohesiveness in your clubhouse. Then all of a sudden they go out and make a decision based on cohesiveness in the clubhouse, which was, which was sending Kevin Mitchell out of town who goes right, on that, to win an MVP. Right. So, so you're, that's not cohesiveness. I think they, they were, they were worried. They were so unruly they were so out of control and David Johnson didn't mind, but Frank Cash in minded and, and, you know, Whispers are that perhaps some of the ownership group minded. And so um, and so they were like, well, we got to get control of this team and win the right way. We didn't win the Oriole way. Like, you know, the Oriole way is you, you do things the right way. And, and and that was not the Mets way. So as, as Jeff Perlman says, Frank Cashin was horrified by the 1986 Mets. He's like Dr. Frankenstein, like he built this thing and it's a monster and he can't control it. So he's like, well, let me get rid of, you know, I, I mean, you know, Strawberry and Gooden are my, are my gems and, and this guy Mitchell and the three of them, I don't know. And so he gets rid of Mitchell. Um, I mean, that's that's a sort of a crass overgeneralization of what happened. Um, and and but but, you know, it's like, yeah, and you, you get rid of Mitchell and you bring in Kevin McGrath's 25 home runs every year, 20 stolen bases. He's, good. Hitter. He's a totally solid player. But where's an MVP? Spark? Well, yeah, right. And just speaking about uh, reminisce about Blake's now getting pulled uh, with Ray's Dodgers, there was another play that Roger Clemens got pulled yeah. in Game Six. Yeah. So they, that how did you feel as a Mets fan when you see Roger Clemens, even with blisters, shutting down the Mets? He had four no hit innings, and then they pulled him, and then the yeah. Mets immediately tie the game. Yeah, was, no, I'm was I'm, with Kevin, Mitchell. I'm with Kevin Mitchell on that one. I mean, that's like God is good, man. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, the Mets didn't understand, like, and, and I think that that was another one of these, like, well, no, the plan is I'm going to the bullpen if in the eighth inning, if I, if Roger can get me there. And so, you know, I think McNamara had, had a plan. He, you know, I mean, whatever, he was not a great manager and, and not a great in-game manager, let's, let's say. And yet what's interesting is he, he did decide, okay, I'm, I'm, I want to win it with my guys. I'm going to send Buckner out into the field, even though every other game where we have a lead, I send Stapleton out. I want Buckner on the field. And it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, the guy wants to Bill Buckner to be able to celebrate, right, you know, with everybody else. And it, it backfires on him uh, in, in a spectacular way. I really liked how you, how you highlighted that too, because for me, that's something that's always, always bothered me a little bit. Uh, given I grew up and I didn't really get to see Bill Buckner play. And all I knew was the Buckner boot. That's all I knew about Bill Buckner. I didn't know about whether he was a guy that played 22 seasons or a guy that had over 26, 2700 hits. And that's what he should be remembered as, right? This is somebody that won a batting title. And I understand that you you can't control how you're remembered, but at the same time, I, I thought it really highlighted how little he really was a part of their demise in that series. Yes, that one play is a spectacle, but they already blew the lead. They already 
had blown a lot of different situations leading into that. And then they had a chance to win the game the next day or, or two days later, and they didn't do that either. So to, to like stare at that one play, you could probably find dozens of other plays and decisions and things that were just not as dramatically bad in terms of how it looks in that one specific moment. But I really did like that just brief, at least little touch on, Hey, yes, this was a bad mistake, but there's a lot more context than just Buckner boot. And I want Bill Buckner to be known a little bit more as the batting champion too. Obviously you're not going to be able to fully shake that. And it's really a shame, but I was very glad because a lot of people my age, let's say, may not know what kind of player Bill Buckner is. And there's a lot of people my age that are watching that documentary that may realize, wait, there's a lot more to this story than just some guy had the ball go through his legs. Yeah, he was a, a terrific hitter and, and had been ravaged by injuries, you know, uh, his whole career. I mean, he came up with the Dodgers. He was a fantastic outfielder and he ran fast and stuff. Um, he did. Yeah, boy. One thing we had that we lost uh, in 1974, uh, the Dodgers were playing the A's and in game five, the Dodgers were down three games to one. And Buckner, I, I can't remember whether he let off the A's inning. Uh, they were down two runs and he hit a ball, he hit a base hit to right field. Uh, right center field and and Billy North the center fielder came over and the ball went under his glove and Buckner racing around first races around second heads for third and is thrown out at third base to begin the inning and it's such a blunder that Johnny Carson makes a joke about it a national blunder in a world series by Bill Buckner in 1974 <laughs> and uh, it's it's incredible and uh, you know at one point we had that in the film um, so I do think that Buckner was was sort of marked by fate in a certain way, uh, and it was a neat foreshadowing thing to be able to use that. But anyway, that was part of the six and a half hour rough cut, uh, not part of the final film. Well, I like the foreshadowing with the Buckner home run off of Mike Scott, though. Yeah, that was you. very cool, too, because everybody knew it was coming. But that was something I caught. And I was like, oh, that's cool to, to see Buckner going yard off of Scott. It, it just the way that all ties in together was pretty darn cool. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad you liked that. That was, uh, you know, when we saw that, I was like, well, this, this is great. I mean, it's a little subtlety. Yeah. And arm and I were, when we were watching the screening at city field, there was a young 20 year old named doc Gooden, and I'm, I'm 23. So I never got to see doc good in person, but I've always heard stories. I even met him in person and he was a wonderful human, but I didn't really understand how good he was. But when we saw those highlights and I see him spinning what looks like high spin, high 90s heaters, and then just a curveball. And he was so unbelievably good in 1985. He went 24 and four with a 153 ERA in 276 innings with 268 strikeouts. Blows my mind. Was there a point where you thought Doc Gooden would actually be better than Tom Seaver? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think we all did. I think, um, uh, you know, we have his career stats through that Mother's Day start in, in 86 and his you know career ERA is like 191 and he's 46 and 13 or something. And you just felt like this guy is off the charts. Sandy Koufax said I would trade my past for his future. I mean, we all felt like we were in the presence of the greatest pitcher of all time. And that puts a lot of pressure on a guy who's 20 years old and and doesn't have much of a support system. 
the other thing that was interesting is, is as a Mets fan, I thought, we all thought, oh, we understand Daryl's haunted. He comes from a broken home. I'm talking about in the mid 80s. Like we knew he had had a rough childhood and he was also such a, you know, a, a, what's the word? I mean, he was a jerk, you know, like you saw he could be a jerk. He was sweet and wonderful sometimes, but he was fighting with his teammates and, you know, snarling at the press and missing games because of a toothache and, you know, and, and, but Dwight was like an angel and, and we were all told he comes from a stable middle-class background and he comes on the scene and wins rookie of the year and then has this insane 24 and four year in 85. And you just felt like, well, this guy, he's just the greatest pitcher of all time. He was a college sophomore, basically 20 years yeah. old. That's what I yeah. couldn't believe. 20 yeah. years old. Yeah, I was, I was, I, I was, and am maybe six months younger than Dwight Gooden. And I was, you know, I was like, yeah, I, I you know, it was ridiculous how great he was. Um, we all thought he was going to be the greatest pitcher of all time. And, and we just didn't know what was going on in his backstory or that his, he, he had come from an equally troubled, if not more traumatic childhood, uh, as, as Daryl Strawberry did. His parents stayed together, yes, but his mother shot his father. And he saw a lot of violence in his life. And it's just like, I don't know how you deal with that. And some people turn to drugs and, and, and Dwight did, and he regrets it, and, but it's a disease and he can't control it. And uh, it's just, it's, it's one of the great tragedies, not just of, of baseball, but, you know, of, of his life. And, you know, thank goodness he seems to have turned his life around. But, um, you know, I also have to say as a Met fan, I, the, the, during the pandemic, we were basically shut down and I was doing most of the interviews remotely um, with one exception. I did fly to St. Louis, uh, where ironically, Daryl Strawberry lives. He, he lives in suburban St. Louis. As he says, like, God must have a great sense of humor to, to have brought me to St. Louis, but that's where his wife is from and he lives there. And he is, you know, he's a born again Christian and he just beams a, a sort of optimism and hope about life, speaks with enormous um, distance about all the problems that he went through. And it was wonderful to meet him. And, and as a filmmaker, it was tr tremendously exciting. As a Met fan, I did think if he'd been like this, <laughs> he'd have hit 850 home runs. I mean, Seriously. yeah, I mean, he, he, if he had his head on straight, I mean, this guy would have just been off the charts. Uh, and I used to, and I asked Keith Hernandez and he, you know, didn't have this thought. I mean, it was fun to make this film because, you know, I'm the filmmaker, but I'm also a Met fan. So I asked Keith this thing that as a kid or 20 year old or whatever I was, I, I always thought like, did you ever think Keith with my brain, if I'd been in Daryl's body, like what I could have done. And he was like, no, nah, I never really thought that. <laughs> how does he compare um, to I, Jacob deGrom? How does... Gooden compared to Jacob Yeah, how does Doc Gooden compare to Jacob McGrom? Oh, oh, well, uh, you know, the thing about, I mean, DeGrom is amazing and he's lights out and, and like Gooden, you just are sort of feel like you're in the presence of a robot and, and <laughs> he's, he's incredible. What Gooden had going for him was youth. So you weren't just cheering that he was mowing people down and striking out 16 guys and shutting out the Giants on three hits. You were cheering like what we're going to continue to have. And with DeGrom, especially now, every start, it's like he's a thoroughbred and he's about to step in a ditch and it's all going to be over. <laughs> like you just never know. So there's something like it's thrilling, but, and it's exciting, but it, it doesn't have the same uh, sort of sky's the limit optimism that you had with, with Gooden. There was a level of 
I just thought maybe but the most powerful part of, of that entire documentary uh, was at the end when Doc Gooden's talking about the team winning. Right. And, and, and this has been set up the whole way you're climbing essentially what is Mount Everest to the climax of this story, which is winning the 86 world series, which every single player is saying one of the best moments of their entire lives fans saying it was one of the best moments of their entire lives. Everybody just saying it was pure euphoria that will never be matched. It almost set the bar too high for everything. Then you have Doc Gooden, who went straight to pick up drugs and missed everything, everything. And you can just see the regret. And honestly, I rarely get affected by by films and stuff like that. But I, I got emotional at that because you can't go back, like he said. And I feel like that's got to be one of the most tormenting feelings of, you know, wanting to go back and wanting to fix that. And, and of course, the most important thing is that he has his life under control now and that he's still around because obviously it can get bad really fast there. But just the way that came across after the buildup of every guy saying it was the best day of their lives. And then for him, it was the worst day of his life. I just thought that was so, so powerful and really just highlights you see these guys on the field and they might look okay. And I know Gooden was fading a little bit too, as, as it started to impact him on the field, but you have no idea what these guys are going through off the field. And they're not these robots that just perform all the time and then don't have lives off the field. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's very heartbreaking. And, and I, I feel like he was so candid and open with us um, and, and he wants people to know his story so that they don't make the same mistakes, you know, and he said it would, it was the greatest day of his life too, but it went from the greatest day to the worst day in about four hours. You know, he comes back in the clubhouse and he makes two phone calls. The first is to his dad. I love you. I love you, son. I'm so proud of you. And you, this is so great. And, you know, okay, now I got to call my drug dealer and it's just, it is, it's heartbreaking and, um, you know, I think that he was crying for help, you know, and I think that the, you know, look, we didn't have time for it, but, um, you know, the aftermath and what happened, you can imagine a world where he misses that parade and the Mets call him in and say, Dwight, we got to talk, you know, let's, let's get this straightened out. And, and instead it was like, okay, yeah, I had the sniffles, I overslept, you know, okay. You know, and then, well, uh, you know, he fails a drug test and all right, well, let's send him off to Smithers and you do your 28 days and let's get you back on the field. I'm not saying that they were like that, but I, I think that must have been part of it. And um, yeah, it, the whole thing is just it's very, you know, it's 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 heartbreaking. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for taking the time. I mean, this is a fantastic conversation. You have to go watch Once Upon a Time in Queens on ESPN, watch ESPN. It debuted September 14th and 15th, but it is now available on ESPN Plus. And you also have a new book that you just dropped as well. Yes, I do. I, there's also a, a companion book to, to the series, which is, you know, I said a six and a half hour rough cut. It's essentially, it's an oral history of the 86 Mets. So it's a lot of the stories that we weren't, didn't have time for make it into the book. Um, 
But in fact, I also did just uh, publish a book the same day, a crazy coincidence, you know, Jefferson and, and uh, Adams dying on the same day. <laughs> uh, I, I, I uh, published a book about my grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, and his brother, Joe Mankiewicz. Um, people may know Herman as the subject of the movie Mank. Um, and uh, there, it's a portrait of their lives and the, the deep competition that, that went on between them. It's called Competing with Idiots. Um, and uh, it, it, the title is from a famous telegram that Herman sent uh, back to uh, Ben Hecht when he first got out to Hollywood. He said, there's millions to be made out here and your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a book I've been working on for 18 years. And to awesome. see these two projects that, you know, obviously I've always been related to Herman Mankiewicz. I've always been a Met fan and to have these two things uh, coming out at the same time. It's a sort of a crazy uh, uh, coincidence. Yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations on everything. Again, it was such a pleasure to be able to watch this and to be able to talk to you about it afterwards is, was unbelievable. And I know we're about to wrap up, but I did have one last thing I really wanted to ask is who was the most difficult player to corral to, to get locked down for an interview? Uh, and then maybe. Well, Sort of to, to when you said difficult player too, I think it was, it was Kevin Mitchell. It wasn't difficult to get him, but he gave me the most guff during the interview, and it worked beautifully. I mean, I think his he, I think he the whole time he was like, "Oh, you're just trying to get me. You're trying to get me to say." I, I'm like, "I don't try to get you to say anything, you know." And and I I said I didn't even bring up the the cat thing. I didn't even bring it up. You know, he just said, "Oh, there's a lot of stories about me. I didn't decapitate." A cat with a 16 inch blade. <laughs> I forgot about that part. Yeah, yet. I mean, it, crazy. Your Honor, all due respect, I didn't mention a 16 inch blade. Yeah. You know, like I, I, 16 inch. And so, so anyway, it, he was he was hilarious, and and every question I asked him, he was like, "Oh, you're trying to get me to." I was like, "I'm not trying to get you to do anything." So he was he was the most sort of fun in a, in a sort of lively way. Um, difficult to corral. Roger McDowell was with his in laws during COVID. That it was difficult to schedule him. It was difficult to schedule Ray Knight. Um, but nobody, you know, nobody was, was difficult in, in any real way. George Foster, he originally said no. You know, Jay Horowitz made the initial thing. Let me connect you, Jay. And George Foster said no. I said to Jay, let me just talk to him on the phone. I talked to George Foster on the phone, had a wonderful, very fun and funny conversation. He, you know, I, I, I was so happy. And then COVID struck. And when I reached back out to him in, uh, I can't remember when it was, he said, you know, I'm going to pass and, and I'm sorry to have wasted your time. And I was like, please, you didn't waste my time. I just think it would have been great to have you. Um, but, uh, so he was, he was sort of the difficult, the, the, he was the one that got away, but in the end, I'm, I'm pretty happy. And Mike Scott as well. He said, no, but I'm, <laughs> in the end, I'm happy with how we dealt with it. You know, you referred arm uh, to the, to the, um, to the Perlman, you know, Jeff Perlman saying, well, you know, you're going to tell your story. Yeah. I'll tell it when I, when I write my book, well, when you're going to write a book, never like that's, <laughs> that's good enough. That that's all you really need to hear from Mike Scott yeah. is that he's not going to talk, you know, I was going to um, say, he's just working on his book. That's why. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's coming out soon. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, what is coming out soon and what's out now is the ESPN once upon a time in Queens, which you can find on watch ESPN streaming live on ESPN. Thank you so much, Nick. This was fantastic. And you're welcome on anytime. Hopefully the Mets can make the playoffs. I don't know. I don't know if they will. Well, that's the thing. Maybe they are setting us up for another miracle run. You never know. Um, 
the 2021 Mets. You never know, but you do kind of know. You do kind of know. And <laughs> know. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Nick. Thank you, guys. This was fun. So one thing we didn't get to in our little prequel and then in that conversation that really stood out to me that I just loved because I'm not a big Roger Clemens guy. I mean, I appreciate what he did on the field, but <laughs> Roger Clemens is annoying and his fake retirements four times and uh, throwing the shard of the bat at Mike Piazza. It goes on and on. Him shaving when he wasn't going to shave because he wanted the good luck or whatever. It was like the playoff beard. And in the ninth inning, he went in to the clubhouse and shaved because he wanted to look really good for the press conference. And then they lost and he was a clean shaven loser. I loved that. Um, But those little things talking about this conversation with Nick, such a good good documentary because of those things that he put in. He took the time to get the little intricacies, the foreshadowing, all those things you learn about in like your classes of, uh, of basically you, you'd probably appreciate this. I know there's a lot of, of, of film, not film, but, but performance uh, in your family's history, like per- appreciating the little intricacies was- that go into a film or a performance or a play or whatever it is. There were so many subtleties that really were impactful that Nick put in there. And I even just love the little thing, like shaving the beard and just like the little things of how over the game was perceived to be. So after I watched the full thing through, then I watched the full thing through again. And then I watched it again to prepare for the interview, just because I I wanted to get those tiny little details in that you were saying, and those tiny little details are what set this apart. This is not one of those movies that, Oh, Oh, if I don't love baseball, am I going to like it? Oh, I don't really know about the players. It doesn't even doesn't matter if you hate baseball. And I'm telling you this, it's better than The Last Dance. Yes. It's better than The Last Dance. It's a four-part documentary. Go to ESPN, stream it on Watch ESPN, 30 for 30s. It is phenomenal. Nick is phenomenal. But we also do have to apologize to a New York man. Not apologize, but we should highlight the fact to give him a thumbs up that Javier Baez, since coming over to the Mets, we called him overrated and he is overrated because I believe that if that he if you think that he's going to keep this up, what he's doing with the Mets, he I don't think he will. But hey, I'm biting my tongue now. I might bite my tongue next year if he comes back and has a really good season. I would say that he wouldn't. But what I will say is. We need to give Javi Baez some credit with the Mets in 34 games since being traded over there. He's hitting 306 with a 378 on base with a 587 slugging, 965 OPS. He's got nine bombs. And yeah, he's still striking out, but he's been electric. He's been big in big spots for them. We've made fun of him because he's missed strikes by four feet with his bat. But he's playing well for the Mets, and that's the end of it. Sorry, Javi. Yeah, yeah. no. I, I mean, I, I mean, we gotta. If we're gonna be hard on him, we gotta, we gotta say when he's doing well, and he's doing well, and he's one of the lone bright spots. When door two, I mean, that three home run game against the Yankees was was spectacular. But these two guys, I mean, all of a sudden they're, they're heating up, but it seems like it's a little bit too little, too late, and. uh that's what it's looking like for the Mets. So I know Steve Cohen took his victory lap. Like, where are all of you Javi Baez haters now? Like, dude, I get it. You're making you're not a, making the playoffs, bro. Yeah, you're making like that's a good point. If you're Javi Baez's agent, like you got one player and it looks kind of good. Of it looks like a decent move. 
but your team still sucks. You're not going to make the playoffs. And now you're beefing with the former Marlins executive, by the way, the former Marlins president. And he, he needs to delete his Twitter. That's all I have to say. I mean, I'm so out on Steve Cohen. So out on Steve Cohen. They banned Trump. They got to ban Steve Cohen. Yeah, it's getting there. It's, no, no. Steve, Steve Cohen, he, he's like the baseball version of just like the miserable Twitter guy that just needs to not tweet. He, he he offered anybody the opportunity to come into the box if they could guess who the anonymous executive was that said negative things about him in the New York Post story. Like, dude, just what? just let it go. Just let it go. Like, it comes with the territory. It. I would get it if Javier Baez push them and let's say now they're in first place and it was an unbelievable like that was the they're they're at playing 500 baseball right now yeah he's just yeah it's like yeah he's played really well you still give up Pete Crow Armstrong yeah I'll just see see where he is he's at it a couple of years and we'll we'll go back on this and see if it was worth it yeah I'm with you I I didn't like giving up Pete Crow but if they make the playoffs it's worth it if they don't they better extend Javi and uh that would make it a little bit more justifiable, but we'll see if that's even in the cards. Well, go check out our article about the interview with Nick Davis on justbaseball.com. Also toss us a follow on Instagram at just baseball fans. Same with TikTok at just baseball fans. Follow our Twitter at just BB media. I'm at Peter Apple 23 on Twitter. That's arm Layton eight on Twitter. Also, we stream every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on Twitch, twitch.tv slash just baseball fans. And you can also catch us on YouTube at just baseball media. We're everywhere. Um, Jack and I, yeah, literally everywhere. Arm, Jack and I had, have this bit now that he goes through that whole spiel and he can never get it perfectly right. And then I always add it in to the next. Did I miss anything? Discord. Discord. See, I can't even get it. We got a Discord right. too. All the kids have too many things nowadays. We're on basically every single social media platform. Go check it 